0: There was once a little princess whose father was a king over a great country full of mountains and valleys. His palace was built upon one of the mountains, and was very grand and beautiful. The princess, whose name was Irene, was born there, but she was sent soon after her birth because her mother was not very strong, to be brought up by country people in a large house, half castle, half farmhouse, on the side of another mountain, about halfway between its base and its peak. The princess was a sweet little creature, and at the time my story begins was about eight years old, I think, but she got older very fast. Her face was fair and pretty, with eyes like two bits of night sky, each with a star dissolved in the blue. Those eyes, you would have thought, must have known they came from there, so often were they turned up in that direction. The ceiling of her nursery was blue, with stars in it, as like the sky as they could make it but I doubt if ever she saw the real sky with the stars in it, for a reason which I had better mention at once. These mountains were full of hollow places underneath, huge caverns and winding ways, some with water running through them, and some shining with all colors of the rainbow when a light was taken in. There would not have been much known about them had there not been mines there, great deep pits with long galleries and passages running off from them, which had been dug to get at the ore, of which the mountains were full. In the course of digging, the miners came upon many of these natural caverns. A few of them had far-off openings out on the side of a mountain or into a ravine. Now in these subterranean caverns lived a strange race of beings, called by some gnomes, by some kobolds, by some goblins.
1: out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having
0: your natural self changed into a Christ self. Welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour, where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, Owen Barfield, and others discuss their works and lives. I'm Chris Pipkin, Associate Professor of English at Emanuel College in Georgia, an occasional maker of verse. And joining me today, we have Sophie Burkhart and Bill Stanford. Sophie, we've had on the show before. It's good to see you again, Sophie. Can you tell our listeners a few things about yourself in case it's the first time they've heard your voice? Yeah,
1: I'm excited to be back on and talking about George McDonald's, who is. Maybe my favorite author of all time, but that that feels like such a hard thing to say, Uh, but I absolutely love him. Really the only interesting thing about me, I do a podcast myself called Beneath the Willow Tree, where I just talk about philosophy, theology, the arts, all such fun things.
0: Great. And it is a really fun podcast. So I encourage you all to check it out if you like thoughtful ruminant. Is that a an adjective? Anyway, it is now ruminant and long, which you do if you listen to this podcast, discussions of ideas and, and works of literature. So definitely check that out and I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. And for the first time ever, we have Father Dr. Bill Stanford. How are you doing, Bill?
2: Yeah, uh, I'm doing well. Uh, that was it, really. That, those were the things I do. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I uh, so I am a priest in the uh, in the Anglican Church of North America, and the la- I was thinking the last time I took any sort of class or, or formal uh, instruction in literature was in 2009. So I am excited to be here and try not to make a fool of myself. Uh, but I do love, particularly Lewis and Tolkien, and I have discovered since having children a love for George MacDonald, and particularly for this story, and so I'm I'm excited to talk about it.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about it with you, too. I remember one of our first conversations at length had something to do with this book. I remember going out with you and, and someone else for coffee and overhearing you all talking about it, and it had been a long time since I'd read it, so I, I only remembered a, a few things about it, but I knew I had to invite you on the show when we covered this story listeners we are well aware we have not lost our minds George McDonald was not a member of the inklings and yet we are covering him on the inklings variety hour the reason we are is that he had a tremendous influence on both Lewis Tolkien and others they all kind of knew him and 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 they weren't unusual in this a lot of people in their generation would have as as in ours would have known George McDonald I mean not personally but known as works. Very famously reading McDonald's Fantasties was what, quote-unquote, baptized the imagination of young Jack Lewis well before his conversion to Christianity. Despite this, The Princess and the Goblin is probably McDonald's best-known work, and it's, in my opinion, a lot more accessible. Princess and the Goblin was published in book form in 1872 after being published as a serial in a children's magazine called Good Words for the Young, beginning in November of 1870. It was not only known and well regarded by the Inklings, but it's been generally influential. A class really just behind like works like Alice in Wonderland, which, by the way, is written by Lewis Carroll, who was a friend of McDonald. This is a very well-known children's story. It's been adapted. It's had, both through Lewis and Tolkien and even without their help, had tremendous impact on fantasy literature in general. I'd love to hear, Sophie, you're talking about how important McDonald has been to you. Can you give us any kind of sense of his biography at all it's fine if you can i'm putting you on the spot
1: no i totally got this i actually made a presentation once for my family on george McDonald, so i pulled up ahead of time so i could uh, see my bullet points of his biography so
0: so before we get to george mcdonald you make presentations for your family
1: Uh, oh well not often you what
2: i said i'm so glad i'm not the only one
1: yes (laughs) oh (laughs) Yes, I was having a conversation with my aunt. And I was like, you know what, let me just make you a presentation. So that's what that
0: happened. is awesome. That is awesome. All right. Well, I want to hear it. I'm excited.
1: Okay, this is just bullet pointed. So it's nothing fancy. But uh, he lived from 1824 to 1905. He was born in Hudley, Aberdeenshire. And what I think is really interesting, he sort of had this double background of his father, who was more of a Celtic Christian, and his grandmother, who was really strong calvinist and you sort of from what i've read i haven't read many of his real life stories but i've heard that sort of the tension between those is more common in those stories sort of what it was like to grow up with a grandmother like that he was a minister in Arundel in england but he resigned after two years a little bit of controversy throughout his life with some of his theology which i think his theology is fascinating i read a book called baptized imagination by carrie dearborn on it which is quite good his literary career began in 1855 with poetry but he didn't publish his first novel until 1863 he had 11 children and i know that he and his wife are also very well known for being hospitable like hospitality was one of his key attributes he wrote over 50 volumes of works and after he died his reputation dwindled pretty quickly and i think it's fascinating is that he was buried in an english cemetery in italy not even in england because i was like i should look up his grave so that i can go but it's almost impossible to find his grave online in case anybody is curious about that Hmm. but that's a brief summary of his biography
0: that's awesome thank you so much it sounds like just from reading a few biographical things that his was one of those literary families that you had in the 19th century like the Rosettis you know who had a huge family and they were really into the arts and they were always doing these sort of creative things that showcased the faith and allowed people even of different sort of strains of faith to be in dialogue with each other as well as in in dialogue with people who were probably not conventional Christians, such as some of the Rossettis, such as some of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, for example. Lewis Carroll, as I said before, was a was a good friend. He was often, one of his frequent patrons was Lady Byron, the poet Lord Byron's uh, widow. So definitely part of the whole literary scene in, in his time, but, but also very much deep committed Christian intent on living out his, his faith. I read... At the top, the very beginning of The Princess and the Goblin, and we find out that the goblins are you know, definitely related to humans, but because of political differences a long, 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 long time ago, they ended up fleeing down to the caves and underground and sort of developing differently from humans. There was a legend current in the country that at one time they lived above ground and were very like other people. But for some reason or other, concerning which there were different legendary theories, the king had laid what they thought too severe taxes upon them or had required observances of them they did not like, or had begun to treat them with more severity in some way or other, and impose stricter laws. And the consequence was that they had all disappeared from the face of the country. According to the legend, however, instead of going to some other country, they had all taken refuge in the subterranean caverns, whence they never came out but at night and then seldom showed themselves in any numbers, and never too many people at once. It was only in the least frequented and most difficult parts of the mountains that they were said to gather even at night in the open air. Those who had caught sight of any of them said that they had greatly altered in the course of generations, and no wonder, seeing they lived away from the sun in cold and wet and dark places,
2: See, I was just looking at the dates and th- thinking about when he published this. You know, an Origin of Species would have been published just what, like maybe a decade beforehand. And it's interesting to think about how, like in the U.S., Origin of Species, ta- we were kind of busy right in the like 1850s and 1860s, and uh, so it, it takes a while for Origin of Species to really like hit. Um, but in Europe, it would have had a much bigger impact much sooner. And and it's interesting to me that he begins the story with a story about the evolution of these goblins. You know, and I, and I don't know how much. I mean, there's some sort of he's giving some biological details there or some mechanisms there that it would have i don't know i don't know if other authors before origin of species would have written that kind of description for why these sort of this kind of deviant race comes into existence
0: what it reminded me of was the morlocks and the time machine and i wonder if hg wells didn't get the idea partially from or maybe maybe it was just something that was in the water in the late 19th century but you know time machines published a good Two decades plus after after the Princess and the Goblin, and in the Time Machine, you have this subterranean race of Morlocks and this race living above ground, which are like the two forks that humanity split into. You know the difference being that in the H. G. Wells, they're both quite different from humanity, right? Um, and in this, uh, you know, we have we have the humans who live above ground, and then we have the goblins who live down in the caves and make trouble for the humans. And yeah, it says the king puts her in this kind of house out in the country. The only problem being that out in the country there are lots of mines and lots of uh, places under the mountains where these sort of mischievous goblins live. The goblins very famously are enemies of the king. They don't like the king, they don't like the monarchy, and George MacDonald goes so far as to say that one common explanation of their origin is that there is some uh, disagreement between them and and the king regarding taxes at some point, which caused them to like go underground. It's such a weird explanation of an origin of, of goblins. Is he just being tongue in cheek? as he making some kind of political point? Is he doing Both are are the goblins Americans who didn't like you know the British because (laughs) because he didn't like taxes. What's going on here?
1: I like the um, Americans' interpretation. I think that's funny. I I don't know. I was thinking about that question, and it feels like maybe it's just a funny way of explaining goblins, the goblins' origin. You know, like comparing it to H. G. Wells. H. G. Wells always feels very politically motivated, or he always has lots of thoughts behind why he's doing those things. Uh, But this to me just. It feels so ridiculous that they would just go underground because of taxes. I don't know. But maybe that also kind of sets it up. There's already some sort of relationship between them and the king because those sorts of not power struggles, but you have two different monarchies that kind of come into play near the end of the story of the goblin king versus the princess and that sort of thing. So maybe it's just sort of already setting up in your mind that there's going to be this connection between these two worlds than if they were just random monsters living under the mountains.
0: There needs to be a reason set out why the princess particularly should be afraid of the goblins, why, why they might have malign intentions toward her. They had enough of affection left for each other to preserve them from being absolutely cruel for cruelty's sake to those that came their way. But still, they so heartily cherished the ancestral grudge against those who occupied their former possession, and especially against the descendants of the king, who had caused their expulsion, that they sought every opportunity of tormenting them in ways that were as odd as their inventors. And although dwarfed and misshapen, they had strength equal to their cunning. It's not terribly clear what exactly they are. And goblins like dwarves, like elves, like all these little subterranean creatures were not really that distinct from each other. Gnomes as well, right? Even in McDonald's time, you know, there are places where he calls the goblins gnomes, for example. It's kind of understood that these are just all different words for like weird little mischievous beings that are hard to pin down. And it's not really until Tolkien and his followers in the 20th century that you get this really clear delineation between like elves are this way and dwarves are this way and goblins are that way and but yeah in in mcdonald's time they are pretty close to interchangeable although probably they would have understood something different you know when you said the word fairies than when you said the word goblins i expect one of the stories that mcdonald is drawing on has to do with you know, stories of miners who would be mining maybe late at night and would hear another tap, 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 tapping, uh, would blame it on some sort of mischievous spirit. Any other thoughts on goblins in general? Has anyone seen
2: a goblin? Sophia, are there goblins on uh, the uh, university campus?
1: I haven't seen any goblins, but I wouldn't be surprised if they're around somewhere. Maybe we live too far from the mountains. Maybe that's our problem.
2: There you go. Yeah, you gotta go.
0: That is probably it. That's probably it. University
2: of Tennessee has probably got goblins plenty.
0: It's probably because they're not very good poets there, and we are. Because as we'll learn in this book, it's good rhymes that keep the goblins away. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The first weird thing. McDonald gives us this kind of outline of the political situation and how goblins Don't like the king and his family and, and, you know, humanity is sort of diverged um, into this subterranean race of mischievous little people uh, a long, long time ago. But the first weird thing that happens is not an encounter with goblins. It's the princess Irene getting lost and finding herself in a huge house, the house that, that she kind of grew up in, getting bored with her toys. It's rainy finds this new stairway and goes up the stairway and meets this woman who's just kind of like living up there in a tower in her house. The little princess wondered to see how straight and tall she was, for although she was so old, she didn't stoop a bit. She was dressed in black velvet with thick, white, heavy-looking lace about it, and on the black dress her hair shone like silver. There was hardly any more furniture in the room than there might have been in that of the poorest old woman who made her bread by spinning. There was no carpet on the floor, no table anywhere, nothing but the spinning wheel and the chair beside it. When she came back, she sat down again, and without a word began her spinning once more while Irene... "'who had never seen a spinning wheel, "'stood by her side and looked on. "'When the old lady had succeeded "'in getting her thread fairly in operation again, "'she said to the princess, but without looking at her, "'Do you know my name, child?' "'No, I don't know it,' answered the princess. "'My name is Irene.' "'That's my name,' cried the princess. "'I know that. "'I let you have mine. "'I haven't got your name. "'You've got mine. "'How can that be?' "'asked the princess, bewildered. "'I've always had my name. "'Your papa, the king, "'asked me if I had any objection to your having it, "'and of course I hadn't. "'I let you have it with pleasure. "'It was very kind of you to give me your name, "'and such a pretty one,' said the princess. "'Oh, not so very kind,' said the old lady. "'A name is one of those things one can give away "'and keep all the same. "'I have a good many such things.' Wouldn't you like to know who I am, child? Yes, that I should, very much. I'm your great-great-grandmother, said the lady. What's that? asked the princess. I'm your father's mother's father's mother. Oh dear, I can't understand that, said the princess. I dare say not. I didn't expect you would, but that's no reason why I shouldn't say it.
2: my only, like, my experience with this book is reading it to my kids. And my eldest daughter and I read it a couple of times. We have the audiobook for it when we're on road trips, and then my uh, son and I just had actually just started, we had just launched into reading it the week before you texted and asked if we wanted to do this group. So, like, in our reading, we got to chapter 15 tonight, uh, right before I, I jumped on this call. You know, it's interesting when you're reading to kids, you're aware of sort of another perspective, and, and maybe that robs from your own ability to, like, to digest some of what he's doing, because I'm thinking about, you know, like, the discussion with the taxes and the goblins. How do I get through this quickly before david loses interest and you know and we can't okay <laughs> but the grandmother there the grandmother is kind of weird i know you wanted to get to that a little later but that was my experience reading her is that kids don't feel like she's weird at all hmm. you know like it says that she runs upstairs and there's this old woman who's sort of ageless and the old woman's like yeah come here my sweetie and and I'm like, kids, I want y'all to know that this is not what I want you to do in this situation. <laughs> yeah. When we get through all four of the kids, I'll let you know if things change. But two for two have said, no, this is totally normal. Um, they've just kind of gone with the flow.
0: Yeah, that is funny. I was listening to the audio version on LibriVox with, with my wife um, as we were driving back from vacation. She meets this woman who's just kind of always been living there. And she says, I'm your big old, great old grandmother. Nobody's told you about me. Nobody knows about me. For adults, that's a really odd thing to to read. But yeah, I think you're right, especially if they've read the right sort of books, right? If they're conditioned to know about things like fairy godmothers, it's, it's not strange at all.
2: I, I think you're right. There's something important about being able to read that and go with it, you know, and just take it. The, the other thing I'd say about her is that she's hard to voice if you're reading, like if you're sort of trying to lean into a little bit of a dramatic right? Yeah. The author we've got is narrated by Peter Joyce, and she is just downright creepy in his voice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but then you read George Mcdonald and he starts with, she's this ancient woman, but she doesn't look ancient. And, and by the way, she doesn't sound ancient. And the only way that you would know she's ancient is because her hair is silver. But all of these things sort of get unfurled as the story goes on, it gets really difficult to think like like how am I presenting this?
0: Absolutely, yeah. Even in the LibriVox version, which is read by a guy named Andy Minter, who does an amazing job, just to, like different accents it's one of the better LibriVox books that I've that I've heard but yeah he can't really do the old lady's voice very you know it just sounds like an old lady's voice it doesn't sound like Galadriel or something like that you know from Lord of the Rings or whatever else which I imagine maybe would get closer to what it should sound like
2: timeless but also young Yeah. yeah
0: at any point do your children when you read this to them at any point are they sort of um do they suspect that she might not be good are they always like from the very beginning the first description are they always like firmly in the camp of the big great grandmother
2: no you know that's a good point so i said they go for it they go for it after it says that she's their grandmother but i you know so david and i were reading it just a couple of days ago we were at that chapter and you know now that i think about it, he did sort of when she goes up the stairs and there's woman that you know there's this, this voice that says come in and he was sort of oh, and I, I said i think it's gonna be okay buddy you know and we we kept going but i think in the same way that irene is frightened they feel a little frightened but it but also in the same way that she is instantly consoled you know she instantly sort of accepts the validity of the veracity of what the grandmother's saying the kids you know they kind of i think they take that direction and go with it
0: yeah yeah that's a great point so the princess is is kind of a model for them and, and kind of helps them know how to react and if she's not creeped out why should they be creeped out in this edition When she gets up there, it says, what could it be? She was rather afraid, but her curiosity was stronger than her fear, and she opened the door very gently and peeped in. What do you think she saw? A very old lady who sat spinning. And then in this edition, and I haven't seen this in any other editions, there's this long italicized part where there's this interjection. And it says, oh, Mr. Editor, I know the story you're going to tell. It's the Sleeping Beauty, only you're spinning too and making it longer. No indeed, it is not that story. Why should I tell one that every properly educated child knows already? More old ladies than one have sat spinning in a garret. Besides, the old lady in that story was only spinning with a spindle and this one was spinning with a spinning wheel. Else how could the princess have heard that sweet noise through the door? Do you know the difference? Did you ever see a spindle or a spinning wheel? I dare say you never did. Well, ask your mama to explain to you the difference. Between ourselves, however, I shouldn't wonder if she didn't know much better than you. Another thing is that this is not a fairy story, but a goblin story. And one thing more, this old lady spinning was not an old nurse, but you shall see who. I think I have now made it quite plain that this is not that lovely story of the sleeping beauty. It is quite a new one, I assure you. And I will try to tell it as prettily as I can. So it's this weird interjection that I haven't run up against in any of the other editions. Have have you all, do you all have this in your editions?
2: I have it in the, uh, so I have like a, um, on the Kindle, there's a, collection of George McDonald's works and it's in that that's it's the one not, I have not in the audio book
0: so so there too, you're you're kind of having the child's expe- expectations sort of addressed of, oh, I think it's this kind of story. No, 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 it's not that. And I mean, one of the biggest differences is that this is not an old lady waiting to bamboozle someone and make them fall asleep slash die. It's, it's an old lady who has kind intentions, right? Perhaps you will wonder how the princess could tell that the old lady was an old lady when I inform you that not only was she beautiful, but her skin was smooth and white. I will tell you more. Her hair was combed back from her forehead and face and hung loose far down and all over her back that is not much like an old lady is it ah but it was white almost as snow and although her face was so smooth her eyes looked so wise that you could not have helped seeing she must be old so yeah uh, a really interesting kind of arresting description right of someone that that really is like possibly impossible to visualize right Um, at, at least fully "'Somebody knows that you are in the house?' "'No, nobody. "'How do you get your dinner, then?' "'I keep poultry, of a sort. "'Where do you keep them?' "'I will show you.' "'And who makes the chicken broth for you?' "'I never kill any of my chickens.' "'Then I can't understand. "'What did you have for breakfast this morning?' "'Oh, I had bread and milk and an egg. "'I dare say you eat their eggs.' Yes, that's it. I eat their eggs. Is that what makes your hair so white? No, my dear. It's old age. I am very old. I thought so. Are you fifty? Yes, more than that. Are you a hundred? Yes, more than that. I am too old for you to guess. Come and see my chickens. Again she stopped her spinning. She rose, took the princess by the hand, led her out of the room, and opened the door opposite the stair. The princess expected to see a lot of hens and chickens, but instead of that, she saw the blue sky first, and then the roofs of the house, with a multitude of the loveliest pigeons, mostly white but of all colors, walking about making bows to each other, and talking a language she could not understand. She clapped her hands with delight, and up rose such a flapping of wings that she, in her turn, was startled. "'You've frightened my poultry,' said the old lady, smiling. "'And they've frightened me,' said the princess, smiling, too. "'But what very nice poultry! Are the eggs nice?' "'Yes, very nice. "'What a small egg spoon you must have! "'Wouldn't it be better to keep hens and get bigger eggs? "'How should I feed them, though?' "'I see,' said the princess. "'The pigeons feed themselves. They've got wings.' "'Just so. If they couldn't fly, I couldn't eat their eggs.' But how do you get at the eggs? Where are their nests? The lady took hold of a little loop of string in the wall at the side of the door and lifting a shutter showed a great many pigeon holes with nests, some with young ones and some with eggs in them. The birds came in at the other side and she took out the eggs on this side. She closed it again quickly lest the young ones should be frightened. Oh, what a nice way, cried the princess. Will you give me an egg to eat? I'm rather hungry. I will some day. "'But now you must go back, or a nurse will be miserable about you. "'I dare say she's looking for her everywhere. "'Except here,' answered the princess. "'Oh, how surprised she will be when I tell her about my great big grandmother.' "'Yes, that she will,' said the old lady with a curious smile. "'Mind you tell her all about it. Exactly.' Sophie, you were going to say something, I think.
1: I really love, obviously, the great-great-grandmother, however great she is. And I think it's really significant that her hair, I think... Her hair is first described as silver, I think, when Irene is describing it to Lottie. But there's all these connections always of silvery moonlight continually just surrounding her, which I feel like in pretty much all of George MacDonald's stories, moonlight is good. It's protective. It's uh, like that And Lilith, the monsters go away when the moon is shining upon them.
0: A little Um, bit different from uh, Charles Williams's stories Um, (laughs) in 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 Descend into Hell, old Slash young women associated with moonlight were not good. But in, in this, very, very much good. Yeah, that, that was a really odd thing. A really interesting uh, parallel slash not parallel. So the old woman says, Nursie doesn't know. She never saw me. Nobody knows them in this house. And oh, by the way, the way I'm able to live, even though nobody knows them in this house, is I eat pigeon's eggs. Part of the reason that I have this sort of like moon lamp above above my house is to light the pigeon's way back i think she gets into that later i'm not sure still what to make of it i guess my two last questions about the great big great old grandmother are is she is this a theophany is this supposed to be god or is it some sort of a saintly figure that you know, images God in particular ways, but like obviously, like needs to eat pigeon eggs, and yeah, has a bunch of other eccentricities uh, to her, and then and then I guess the other question is just like, why pigeons? Why pigeon eggs? Uh, I hate pigeons. Why? Why is this, this like? Why does this show how holy she is? So uh, what are your thoughts?
1: I feel like she's more of a God figure than a saint figure. I obviously, I don't think she's a perfect God figure. Although I guess she could be you know, fleshly in the same way that Jesus had to eat food. She eats the pigeon eggs. Uh, I don't understand the pigeons either. I, I mean, I guess pigeons are messengers. So I, I assume that's why she has them to some regard. And uh, maybe it's just a fun, quirky thing. I feel like if I was McDonald and I was writing a story for children, I'd be like, well, what would be hilarious? Pigeon eggs, you know? Yeah. Uh, who knows? That could have been... part of the inspiration, but just there are so many moments like the fact people, adults tend to miss her. And it's not just adults. I mean, other people will not see her later. So there's some sort of You have to be in this right sort of state of childlike wonder if you're actually going to be able to encounter her. And then also just the way in the way in which she talks about like the string that she gives that she gives Irene. It's only Irene's if the great grandmother has it. The way in which she interacts is very much a way in which God interacts with us the way in which uh, she expects Irene to trust her to have faith that she's not just a dream, but that she is in some way reality. And then I feel like also with the like burning rose petals and how those are cleansing, that really makes me think of Isaiah when Isaiah comes, has his vision mm-hmm. before God, and he realizes how unworthy he is, and he's cleansed with this sort of fiery coal. But it also makes me think too of Peter, Jesus goes to wash his feet, and Peter says, wash all of me, please. And that's exactly how Irene responds. And so how the grandmother responds to that, I don't know, I feel like there's so many biblical illusions that she seems to be some sort of Jesus, God figure.
2: Yeah, that's good. I wonder if she's, i, I so I came up with this like 10 minutes ago. Uh, so obviously, it's the right answer. But I wonder if she's the church hmm. uh, because she doesn't, the, the thing for me that's always been confusing about her is that she is not self-sufficient. Like she's not, um, yes. it, she's clearly the guiding force. She clearly has this, uh, this wisdom and this insight into what's happening, but she's constantly dependent on the pigeons on, you know, she'll, she talks about like, If the light goes out, then you're not going to see me and things like that. And so it it kind of, I mean, I don't know, you know, and then there's all this talk about she's wearing blue all the time. And for a moment, I was like, wait, is this Mary? Um, But there's a line in, I think it's in chapter 15. I I could be wrong about that, but they're talking about how old she is. And at first I was thinking, oh, she's infinitely old. And then she says, maybe when I'm 2000, then I'll do this. Yeah. Okay, so she's like she's fed by these dove-like creatures. She's dependent upon this light that has this other source. She can feel fear, but she also has this sort of gives Irene her guidance. I don't know. Maybe she's the church.
0: Yeah, that's the best theory I've I've heard. Although I don't know why the church eats pigeons or pigeon eggs, not pigeons. Um,
2: you know, on Sunday I'm gonna preach on that. Actually, I'm glad you brought that up. We're gonna explain about it. <laughs> about eating
0: pigeon eggs. That sounds great. I'll definitely have to make that one. Yeah, that's the best idea of. The grandmother being the church, that's that's really the best explanation I've I've heard for it. So I think you're probably onto something there. Though obviously we're also in danger of making it too allegorical or 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 whatever. But yeah, I think I think that's a that's a that's a really good point. So
2: I've got a question about that, actually, since I've got the two of you here. Uh and y'all are both more learned in this kind of thing than I am. Uh how do you about like Sophie made a reference to like if I'm telling a story to kids. I mean, I have jokes and and it seems like McDonald's has got he's got jokes in there. Yeah. Where's the like, I never know with this story in particular where the line is on like, hey, you're saying something meaningful or oh, you're just like being sort of flippant. And so like maybe it's sort of theophany or something, this figure that's got this grandeur to her. And so you're tempted to like start trying to read in like, hey, what's he really saying? And then they have this conversation about like, hey, how do you get the eggs from the pigeon? Oh, well, I've got this little flap right here and you just pull this straight, you know, and, and then it makes me start thinking, I, well, maybe that is what you were saying. It makes me start thinking, oh, did I read too much into this? Like, maybe this is just a silly story. I don't, yeah, I don't know.
1: I feel like part of it is that whatever McDonald writes, he's just sort of always, I don't, like, he's so deeply... Soaked in theology and in his relationship with Christ that I feel like it just bleeds through even when you 're being silly, so of course, like those deep, meaningful moments are going to come out i don 't know the way I think about it, I guess I even have a hard time grappling with it as a problem. It just feels natural to me, um, which is just just different I guess but i I suppose you're sort of weaving all of these pieces of symbolism um, together and I don't think he ever intends for anything to be a one-to-one allegory which is maybe when it can feel frustrating but I also I do find it interesting I read this essay once that was talking about how literature helps us with properly hoping for the eschaton it's like the final end of things and the way of which literature sort of sets it up that you see this fulfillment of your hopes but because it's literature you recognize that it's not the completion And so you don't expect to find the completion right here and right now. So I don't know if sometimes even weaving together less serious things helps you see things and be hopeful, but also draws the line so that you don't start, you know, worshiping these, not that you'd actually worship a character in a book, but so that you don't go, oh, this is a one for one God character. I don't know if any of that makes sense, but I feel like it's just like a constant push and pull sort of of back and forth as you read it.
2: It almost recognizes the limitedness of of what you're able to accomplish here if the story isn't it's got some some ability to point to the truth but there's a limit to how much you know you can accomplish in in a story as well
0: yeah i mean i think also you know there's there's the um what is it called scandal of the particular the idea that god invests himself into weird eccentric people Right. And whether it's uh, the ancient Israelites, you know, who had to do everything like a particular way that is weird in the way that like maybe eating pigeon's eggs is weird. Right. Or or the the 12 disciples or various ways that the church has found itself looking for the last 2000 years. There's an eccentricity to a lot of this. And I think if we're looking for something that is merely sublime, then perhaps we're missing something that is incarnate in a way that risks awkwardness. Because a lot of the things Christians have done throughout the past 2,000 years are weird, right? In much the way that a lot of the things the big great old grandmother does are, are weird. Yeah, particularity to the grandmother. And and, and like you said, Bill, kind of a, a humor tour that's... Potentially a stumbling block to someone who's just looking for something like very, very romantic and take you out of yourself in some sort of sublime way. Of course, she's not as eccentric as the goblins are, and we should probably talk about the goblins and Curdy. the next adventure that Irene has she's out with her nurse and it's after she and her nurse Ludie have had this big fight because Ludie doesn't believe that there's an old lady living way upstairs that nobody's seen and so they get in a, they get in a fight about it finally she realizes that ludy can't help it that ludy the nurse can't really believe in the big great old grandmother and they make up and they're out one day they fall asleep and uh and they wake up when it's almost night um and Ludie gets really scared because because she knows that it is very much against the rules to keep Irene out that late because the goblins, of course, come out at night and they are special enemies of the king. Suddenly, the shadow of a great mountain peak came up from behind and shot in front of them. When the nurse saw it, she started and shook and tremulously grasping the hand of the princess, turned and began to run down the hill. "'What's all the haste, Nurse? asked Irene, running alongside of her. "'We must not be out a moment longer. "'But we can't help being out a good many moments longer.' "'It was too true.' "'The nurse almost cried. "'They were much too far from home. "'It was against express orders to be out with the princess one moment after the sun was down, "'and they were nearly a mile up the mountain.' his majesty, Irene's papa, were to hear of it, Ludy would certainly be dismissed, and to leave the princess would break her heart. It was no wonder she ran, but Irene was not in the least frightened, not knowing anything to be frightened at. She kept on chattering as well as she could, but it was not easy. Ludy, Ludy, why do you run so fast? It shakes my teeth when I talk. Then don't talk, said Ludy. but the princess went on talking. She was always saying, look, look, Ludie but Ludi paid no more heed to anything she said, only ran on. Look, look, Ludi, don't you see that funny man peeping over the rock? Ludi only ran faster. They had to pass the rock, and when they came nearer, the princess clearly saw that it was only a large fragment of the rock itself that she had mistaken for a man. Look, look, Ludi, there's such a curious creature at the foot of that old tree. Look at it, Ludi, it's making faces at us, I do think. Ludy gave a stifled cry and ran faster still, so fast that Irene's little legs could not keep up with her, and she fell with a clash. It was a hard, downhill road, and she had been running very fast, so it was no wonder she began to cry. This put the nurse nearly beside herself, but all she could do was to run on the moment she got the princess on her feet again. "'Who's that laughing at me?' said the princess, trying to keep in her sobs and running too fast for her grazed knees. "'Nobody, child,' said the nurse, almost angrily. That instant there came a burst of coarse tittering from somewhere near, and a hoarse and distinct voice that seemed to say, Lies, lies, lies. Oh, cried the nurse with a sigh that was almost a scream, and ran on faster than ever. Nursie, Ludie, I can't run any more. Do let us walk a bit. What am I to do? said the nurse. Here, I will carry you. She caught her up, but found her much too heavy to run with, and had to set her down again. Then she looked wildly about her, gave a great cry and said, we've taken the wrong turning somewhere and I don't know where we are. We are lost, lost. Then they meet Curdy, and Curdy has a particular way of scaring the goblins off. What is that way? What does Curdy do? And what do you think
1: of it? He's got some pretty rude verse. Well, rude to the goblins. I think it's great that it's I don't know, something about like the world, like literature, looking at literature is like a long big conversation. It just makes sense that poetry would be something that ugly nasty creatures like goblins are averse to. I I I don't know that I can say much more in that, but like in my mind it just clicks that naturally the way that you would get rid of these ugly creatures is through the beauty of poetry, even if it's slightly ridiculous silly poetry. And I mean McDonald says in the story that perhaps Maybe why the goblins are so disgruntled by it is because they can't make any verse themselves, and so they're jealous of their inability.
0: The greater number of the miners were afraid of the goblins, for there were strange stories well-known amongst them of the treatment some had received whom the goblins had surprised at their work during the night. The more courageous of them, however, amongst them Peter Peterson and Curdy, who in this took after his father, had stayed in the mine all night again and again, and although they had several times encountered a few stray goblins, had never yet failed in driving them away. As I have indicated already, the chief defense against them was verse, for they hated verse of every kind, and some kinds they could not endure at all. I suspect they could not make any themselves, and that was why they disliked it so much. At all events, those who were most afraid of them were those who could neither make verses themselves nor remember the verses that other people made for them, while those who were never afraid were those who could make verses for themselves. For although there were certain old rhymes which were very effectual, yet it was well known that a new rhyme, if of the right sort, was even more distasteful to them, and therefore more effectual in putting them to flight."
1: And I feel like, you know, they've got lots of weird, like, jealousies, differences between them and and the humans. Like, they ridicule humans for having toes. And so you just sort of see all those differences play out in the humorous ways.
0: I think you're totally right, Sophie. That the symbolic meaning of this totally works, right? That when people exercise their making function, it drives the chaos away. Chaos is personified in this story by goblins. On the level of the narrative, I'm not sure why, like, your, like, anger that you can't make verse yourself would be great enough that you'd abandon your, like, aims to kidnap this girl. But, you know, it's, it's fun. But yeah, just as Irene has kind of been climbing up to meet this old queen and have these kind of adventures with this great old grandmother, Curdy, we find through the course of the story, is uh, making his way down as a miner at night as well into the depths of the earth. And that's where he overhears that the goblins have this plan for getting back at the humans. Curdy leaned back for five minutes rest before beginning his work again and laid his head against the rock. He had not kept the position for one minute before he heard something which made him sharpen his ears. It sounded like a voice inside the rock. After a while, he heard it again. It was a goblin voice. There could be no doubt about that. And this time, he could make out the words. "'Hadn't we better be moving?' it said. A rougher and deeper voice replied, "'There's no hurry.' "'That wretched little mole won't be through to-night, if he work ever so hard. "'He's by no means at the thinnest place. "'But you still think the load does come through into our house?' said the first voice. "'Yes, but a good bit farther on than he has got to yet. "'If he had struck a stroke more to the side just here,' said the goblin, "'tapping the very stone as it seemed to curdie against which his head lay, "'he would have been through.' "'But he's a couple of yards past it now, "'and if he follow the load, "'it will be a week before it leads him in. "'You see it back there a long way. "'Still, perhaps in case of accident, "'it would be well to be getting out of this. "'Helfer, you'll take the great chest. "'That's your business, you know.' "'Yes, Dad,' said a third voice, "'but you must help me to get it on my back. "'It's awfully heavy, you know.' "'Well, it isn't just a bag of smoke, I admit, "'but you're as strong as a mountain, Helfer.' You say so, Dad. I think myself I'm all right, but I could carry 10 times as much if it wasn't for my feet. That is your weak point, I confess, my boy. Ain't it yours too, Father? Well, to be honest, it is a goblin weakness. Why they come so soft, I declare, I haven't an idea. Especially when your head's so hard, you know, Father. Yes, my boy, the goblin's glory is his head to think how the fellows up above there have to put on helmets and things when they go fighting. (laughs) But why don't we wear shoes like them, Father? I should like it, especially when I've got a chest like that on my head. Well, you see, it's not the fashion. The king never wears shoes, the queen does. "'Yes, but that's for distinction. "'The first queen, you see, I mean the king's first wife, wore shoes, of course, "'because she came from upstairs, and so when she died, "'the next queen would not be inferior to her, as she called it, "'and would wear shoes, too. "'It was all pride. "'She is the hardest in forbidding them to the rest of the women.' "'I'm sure I wouldn't wear them. "'No, not for that I wouldn't,' said the first voice, "'which was evidently that of the mother of the family.' I can't think why either of them should. Didn't I tell you the first was from upstairs, said the other. That was the only silly thing I ever knew his majesty guilty of. Why should he marry an outlandish woman like that, one of our natural enemies too? I suppose he fell in love with her. Pooh, pooh. He's just as happy now with one of his own people. Did she die very soon? They didn't tease her to death, did they? Oh dear, no. The king worshipped her very footmarks. What made her die, then? Didn't the heir agree with her? She died when the young prince was born. How silly of her. We never do that. It must have been because she wore shoes.
2: My kids love this scene. It's got everything you want in a story to hold a young child's attention. It's, you know, it's tense. It's dark. He's doing something on his own. And, and then he hears these voices. Like, it's it's a really almost scary scene. And uh, and then the Goblins conversation is so absurd. It just, like, it has us in fits whenever we're,
0: we're reading it. Yeah, that's really interesting to me about the way suspense works. In this book, Curdie is never afraid. It's not just that he's brave; it's that he's just never afraid. It's it's almost as though he he's not capable of being afraid. Uh, He's like, I don't need to worry about the goblins. I can make rhymes, and they get really upset, you know, and run away. Yeah, he and even when he follows. This household of goblins further into the mountain and comes to this like sort of great throng of goblins that are all kind of making their plans at the king's court. And they have two plans that the king is kind of hatching. They're really sure that they're really going to get the humans this time. Curdy's still not afraid. He's mainly worried that the goblins will hear him. And then they'll realize that the humans are onto their plans so and they're not going to try that plan. The kind of undercutting of the suspense and the scariness of the goblins with this humor, right? And the way that the goblins talk to each other is just ridiculous. It's just it's completely absurd. Um, there's an element in it in Tolkien's goblins later on who are like pretty darn near directly adapted from these goblins. But Tolkien, I think, manages to make them, ridiculous and scary in a in a way that keeps them pretty scary where where these goblins like the minute they start talking you're like okay these are buffoons this is this is kind of ridiculous yeah it's a really interesting way like you're saying bill that that it just goes straight from tension to
2: laughter you mentioned that curdy is never afraid and there are a couple of themes that come up that he cycles back to a few times in the book one of them is with a great grandmother she mentions a few times this idea that like you can't ever give something away uh, give it truly away without still keeping it right and that's a theme that he seems to be doing something with but fear is another theme that he comes back to a lot and there's a line in it's in chapter 14 uh, and it's about Irene but but I think it relates to Curdy too where he says that is the way fear serves us it always takes the side of the thing that we are afraid of
0: yes I love that's, that Yeah,
2: you know, when you think about Curdy, I think part of what he trying to sort of put forth like he's trying to say something about fear and about the sort of the danger of giving fear any kind of voice uh, in life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I I think I was listening to it um, rather than reading it when I when I heard that line. But I wanted to like highlight it and double underline it. Right. That that fear always takes the side of the thing that we're afraid of. Because there's one thing that maybe we could stand to be reminded of in this moment in our discourse. It's that, that fear does not make us powerful. Fear makes the thing feared seem powerful. Uh, And he just kind of drops it in there like, oh, by the way, here's a Mm. little nugget of of wisdom for you because I'm George MacDonald. The dialogue between the goblins is just wonderful. It is anticlimactic because you're expecting something really creepy and you get this household of morons and then a whole like country of morons. But the humor, I think, like you're saying, manages to make up for the for the fact that it's not too suspenseful anymore. You know, these guys aren't really going to manage anything, especially since the princess has the big, great old grandmother on her side. It's not really a
2: story about evil. I think there are stories about evil. You know, there's stories about sort of standing against like the darkness or whatever. But his story, it's almost sort of preparatory for that kind of story. This is a story about how to act when things feel scary so that when you get to a situation where something really is evil, now you know what to do. So, the villain doesn't have to be that bad. It's about sort of the kids and what they're doing. Yeah, I think that's good.
0: One thing I I did want to ask before we left I haven't seen any adaptations of this. Have either of you seen adaptations of The Princess and the Goblin? Were they any good?
1: I haven't seen any, so I have no idea either.
0: (laughs) I know there was a movie in 1992, but it came out like the same month as The Lion King. I think it was, like, obliterated um, and and also, like, kind of roundly, critically disparaged. Pretty poor. And I think there's at least one other. Okay, so final question. In your opinion, what are the best or worst, books or movies that feature goblins or goblin-like creatures.
1: I love the goblins in The Hobbit. I think is probably my favorite. The Goblin King, the song, everything yeah. to do with that. Down, down,
0: down
2: in goblin town. Down, down, down
1: in...
0: Did you notice that the song in The Hobbit is like weirdly reminiscent of Curdy's song here? Like the goblin song, is, it's very close to the same kind of rhythm.
1: Maybe that was Tolkien critiquing McDonald's poetry or something, that he gives the goblins bad poetry. I don't know. (laughs)
0: Yeah, it's possible. It's possible. It is interesting. Yeah, it's... Odd. Bill, can you think of any any other depictions of goblins in uh, in movies or books?
2: I'm with Sophie. I mean, there was a moment there where I was like, "Do I even know what a goblin is? What are we What are we talking about?" Yeah, and all that's coming up is like Lord of the Rings, which is, I mean, you asked, you know, the best it, I don't know, as far as film and books in my mind. It's probably the best thing out there.
0: Yeah, yeah. It seems it seems to me like in the 1980s, uh, particularly in the movie Labyrinth, goblins had kind of a kind of a renaissance. They sort of had their moment. So you have all these little these little creatures succeeding and kidnapping a baby in the movie labyrinth and one of the most innovative forces in modern entertainment david bowie <laughs> the world of labyrinth you could count things like like fraggles from fraggle rock
2: down at fraggle rock what's the movie with like was like those little creatures that if they get water on them they turn into these like monsters yeah
0: gremlins gremlins and
2: probably the most important thing don't ever feed him after midnight Yum!
1: yum. <laughs> What are these
2: things are those a type of goblin I guess
0: yeah listeners write us at inklingsvarietyhour at gmail.com and tell us if we're wrong about this but I think gremlins could count as goblins the, the history of gremlins is that particular things would go wrong with planes and people would say oh you know there's, there's a gremlin that's screwing up the plane or something like that and so they are they are linked very much to like things going wrong with technology but that's kind of what pre-technology goblins did, right? They messed stuff up in the house, right? Like if you have like a goblin in your house, or a mischievous spirit in your house, or in the mine, or something like that. So I think I think definitely. So um, they're just
2: the goblins with a computer science degree.
0: Yeah, you know, or or mechanical engineering, you know, for the, for the dumber ones um, or smarter ones.
2: Got a STEM degree. Awesome. Yeah,
0: that's right. That's right. Um, of course, no goblins like the liberal arts apparently so so that's why you all should go and study the liberal arts listeners uh, as you are already doing by listening to the inklings variety hour sophie burkhart and father bill stanford thank you so much for joining us yeah i enjoyed i enjoyed talking to you both i enjoyed hearing you hearing your insights uh, and i hope to talk with you some more about this book Um, thank you both
1: All blessed encounter, full of joy, unscheduled on the decent plan, with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan.